What's really going on, everybody? We are back for episode number 73. Before we get into our special guest, please be sure to follow us on all of our social media. That includes Twitter and Instagram at WRGOPod. You can also be sure to check out our latest t-shirts at what's really going on pod.com slash shop. Uh, this time we are back with another special guest. Uh, we wanted to commemorate uh, Asian American Pacific Islander Heritage Month. We're doing that recording in June. It was in May, but we wanted to be sure that we highlighted the month. Uh, and with that, uh, I will let our special guest introduce herself uh, and what she does. Hi, everyone. My name is LaVita Tuff, and I'm policy director at Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta. We are the first and only legal advocacy nonprofit in the Southeast that advocates for the civil rights of the AAPI community. And we do that in a variety of ways. Of course, we do that through policy advocacy. We do that through impact litigation. We do that through civic engagement organizing. And we really have played a very instrumental and critical role in helping to progress and move Georgia forward. And it's something that we can uh, congratulate ourselves for doing a really great job with, especially after this last presidential election. Well, thank you. Um, that was a great introduction. Um, and again, it's a pleasure to have you here to, you know, share your knowledge, um, especially being that you're like, I, did, I didn't know that the first legal group to fund that community, you said, right? Yep, we're the first and only legal advocacy nonprofit in the Southeast. So we do have affiliate chapters that are in Chicago and also in California and other places. But we're the, I say, we're the toughest and strongest crew because we're holding down the deep South in the way that we have issues that some other states are just never ever gonna have to experience what we experience here in Georgia. No, I, I can definitely hear that. Um, so to kind of start, can you just inform us just a little bit more on about what you know your organization do and more importantly like the work you specifically do with your organization yeah so I, our organization like i said plays a really critical role in making sure that we represent the voice of not just api community members but also immigrant community members and so we work in coalition across racially with so many great and amazing organizations down here in georgia that's everything from the new georgia project to the naacp to fair fight action which is their c abrams organization so we do a lot of work around election protection. And so for us, that means advocating for voters who English might not be their first language. So we wanna make sure that they have equitable access to the ballot just like anyone else, because they are American citizens just like anyone else. Um, we also do really great work around legal aid. And so that's helping with deportation defense. So making sure that folks just aren't being deported like we saw with the last administration. And honestly, even with this administration, we're seeing some of that still, especially for Southeast Asians. And so there's some accountability there that needs to take part on the place of the Biden-Harris administration. And so we do a really, uh, a really huge uh, lifting of making sure that we're providing those services, legal services to people at absolutely no cost. And then the role that I specifically play is that, that policy advocacy role. And so like I just mentioned with Southeast Asian deportations in the Biden-Harris administration, my job is to advocate for stopping those types of deportations. My job is to advocate for and hold accountable elected officials to make sure that just because the AAPI community might be a smaller community, it's not an ignored community and it doesn't give anyone an excuse or reason to say, oh, well, they'll be okay, we'll get to them later, or just to overlook and undervalue what they do bring to the table. 
So with an organization like this focusing on um, advocating for Asian Americans, I do have to ask them for our listeners who might not see you, you are a Black woman. So I'm just curious to why you felt like it was important for you to be a part of this organization. Definitely. So I, my background is when I was in graduate school at the University of New Orleans, uh, mastering in urban and regional planning, I decided that I wanted to go to law school and I wanted to go to law school because I felt like as an urban planner on one side of the table, I understood what should be happening on behalf of people. But as a lawyer, I knew how to advocate and knew the laws and what should be happening and how it could happen. And so I went to law school. And so in going to law school, I realized very early on, I didn't want to be a corporate attorney. I wasn't going to be in anybody's courthouse. Like that just was not my thing. And so I started this really long journey of being a lobbyist in Baltimore and then in DC and working for some really amazing causes and people. And uh, about, I would say three years ago, I had an opportunity to come to Atlanta for a conference that was hosted by Asian Americans Advancing Justice Atlanta. And the conference, despite the fact that it was hosted by a AAAJ, it was a way to bring folks together across racially um, from all sectors of life to say that we want to fight for change. And it doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like, what language you speak, we're gonna come together and fight for change because that's the one thing that we all hold together that that's really consistent, that bonds us. And so being a black woman at an organization that's being led by uh, other women of color who are Asian American, we have you know lovely folks who are from the Latinx community. Um, it's a diverse group of people who have all come together to fight for change. And so the drive and push to want to see change, no matter who's leading the, the charge, um, as long as it's a woman of color for us, um, was really, really important for me. And I, I had to become a part of that team and I'm happy to be here. Yeah, so I think one thing, I mean, to kind of piggyback off of Mackenzie's question, I think that one thing that we often notice that's probably often said more than is applied is kind of the need for intersectionality in the advocacy space. And I think you're an example of that, but I think what, I, I think the way we talk about it in the media is kind of like this group gets something which means that all these other minority groups don't. So how do you kind of balance that to ensure that there actually is not just kind of like a, you know, this group gets justice, but this group doesn't like, how do you kind of approach that from a macro level in which you're advocating on a group that you are not you know, a member of, yeah. but how can you kind of apply that to make sure that, you know, more Latinx groups are advocating for the black community, more black, you know, groups like the NAACP are advocating for, you know, what you all are doing. How do you kind of make sure that there's like a, everyone is on one accord in that aspect? Yeah, so somebody just asked me this question and they said, uh, they, the way they positioned it was, how do we address the fact that there's this idea of scarcity, that if one group gets something, another group can't get it? Um, and how do we deal with that concept? And I said that the reality is, is that scarcity is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with the scarcity of resources. And the minute we're able to obtain more freedom, the minute we're able to obtain more resources is the minute that white supremacy comes in and takes more away from us. And so what we all have to maintain in the back of our minds is, is that white supremacy for all communities of color is a major threat. And so what I cannot do is say, I wanna protect only the black community Meanwhile, let white supremacy reign over here with the Asian American community. Because at the end of the day, white supremacy represents hate. It represents bigotry, it represents sexism. And so if we allow it to go over here and flourish, eventually 
they're going to feel like, oh, I'm invincible because I'm flourishing with this group. Let me go on over here and keep trying it with this group. And so I think that we all have to come together in solidarity to push back on white supremacy to say, no, hell no, like not for my group, not for the next group, not for this group. And then also I think that in Georgia, as much as we have given credit to black women for helping to lead this charge and Stacey Abrams, if you notice Stacey Abrams, when she was given all this credit for flipping Georgia, she named our organization. She named the job that, you know, she named advancing justice was doing so much work registering voters. We were doing the work that the black community couldn't do. And that was providing resources and language that was mobilizing API voters who historically have not ever been turned out. It was a 60% increase in voter turnout for the Asian American community. And so she recognized the challenge of having to get folks to buy into this idea of intersectionality and cross-racial solidarity. But because we all bought into it, we saw what happened when we came together. And that was Georgia Flip Blue and there's an opportunity for change. What do you think are kind of the biggest hangups of um, actually kind of achieving that? Because I think there is, you know, the shining example of Stacey Abrams, but you know, there's only, you know, there are a lot of Stacey Abrams that we don't see every day, but I think that, um, I think that for our frustration and for Henry, who's from Atlanta, we think that overall kind of the story of Stacey Abrams has been applied to too many things that it often doesn't need to be. And that there's often a gap in where people will use her name in spaces that it doesn't need to be. So how do you actually kind of like bridge that to make sure that it's applied? Cause it often seems like it's like, yeah, we can do this. And it sounds great on the talking points and the facts memo that we hand out on, you know, coalition calls, but like what's kind of the hardest work of actually kind of make sure that gets done. So I think that the first thing is having to acknowledge and understand that the reality of it is for, for most white people, Georgia is Stacey Abrams. For most liberal white people, Stacey Abrams represents everything that happened to Georgia with this presidential election. And so they don't give credit to the NSAU folks of New Georgia Project. They don't give credit to the Reverend Woodalls of the NAACP. They don't give credit to the Helen Butlers of the People's Agenda. They don't give credit to that. And so acknowledging and understanding that for a lot of white people, Stacey Abrams has been like the poster child for what the Democratic Party wanted to see in Georgia. And let's, yeah. Let's like, let's throw that out there and say, okay, we acknowledge this is what white people do. And then take a step back and allow ourselves to celebrate, honor, and acknowledge the people who are doing the work, who were doing it before Stacey Abrams, like Ms. Helen Butler, who literally, if you ask any person in the state of Georgia, when it comes to election protection in Georgia, voting rights, they're going to say, you need to go talk to Ms. Helen Butler. And Ms. Helen Butler has been doing it literally for 30, 40 years. And so I think that to bring those names to the forefront is for us to also acknowledge that there's this fight for credit that I think that doesn't get talked about enough about people. Everybody wants to be the next Stacey Abrams. Or everybody wants to be the next story that's on CNN or the next Angela Rye. And so instead of looking for moments, we have to look for movements and walk together in those movements instead of trying to find the moments to be seen. And so I think that if we're able to take a step back, we will start to see more of the people who are doing way more than Stacey Abrams, like Tamika Atkins at Pro Georgia, who registered over 2 million people, right? Who's at naturalization ceremonies, making sure that the minute they became a US citizen, they also became a registered voter and she's a black woman. I think that those aren't coalition talking points. Those aren't like 
those also aren't shiny moments that CNN wants to talk about. But if we can share those truths and stories amongst ourselves as we can continue to build out this movement, then that's really, really important because what that says to the next generation of change agents is it doesn't matter if there's a camera there or if Stacey Abrams is there, your voice still matters. I think that being someone who grew up in Atlanta, for me, uh, there's like this VH1 documentary that talks about that moment for Andre 3000 and Big Boy from Outcast when Andre 3000 said the infamous, the South has something to say. And in a room full of people who were booing them and were like, uh-uh, hell no, nah. like we don't want, why, why are they getting it? Why are they coming on stage? Andre is like visibly pissed. He's like, no, this not like, I hear what y'all are saying, but the South got something to say and y'all got to recognize it and kill a mic. Um, in that documentary and others just talk about what that moment represented for the city of Atlanta and what it represented for hip hop. And so what I tell people is, is that in this moment right now, you absolutely have something to say. This is your moment and this is your stage. And it doesn't matter how many people are booing, how many cameras aren't there, who isn't actively listening, this is your moment. So give it all you got and say what you gotta say because you never know how that could definitely pivot to something larger and bigger in the movement. So with that said, I'm actually so glad that you brought that up about, you know, speaking up for what you believe in and, um, you know, especially about protection. I am curious to what um, your organization has done since we've seen over the past few months across the country, you know, an uptick in anti-Asian violence against them. I'm curious to, you know, what has your organization done in the community and make sure, especially like you said, there's not a camera crew there. How has the organization made Asian Americans feel safe? Or, you know, how have you all responded to that? Absolutely. So I think that for us, we have what we call a community-centered approach. And so we lead with community in hand and not community in mind. And so for us, that's asking the really tough questions with community members about simple things such as, do we need to advocate on your behalf because you wanna see increased policing in certain communities? And in a lot of instances, that response has been, no, we don't because of the racial tension there that lies between the immigrant community and members of law enforcement, especially after this last administration that just left about the White House. And so we've done this very proactive role um, prior to the shootings that unfortunately took place in Atlanta. Um, and, and since then of trying to be that place of community-centered healing, um, of capacity building for organizations who do the work that we don't have the access to do. So it might be an organization that provides additional security and us funding that type of work, us funding those organizations or funding that, that business that provides that blanket of security for the Asian American community. And then we've also had several opportunities to call on members from other communities like Reverend Woodall from the NAACP, who has been honestly one of the biggest advocates and champions for our organization and has worked with us consistently and relentlessly um, and advocated in spaces that we haven't had access to to make sure that the Asian American community is heard and that resources are diverted to them. Oh, well, that's great to hear <laughs> that you guys are uh, so active in, in that you kind of briefly mentioned the past administ administration, right? Um, and we've seen some of the effects but like being that you're kind of involved on a more daily basis, what was like the true impact of Trump's like anti-Asian rhetoric surrounding COVID um, and how did that lead to maybe possibly an increase in the crimes that we see that are happening? Yeah, so I think that the last administration, his anti-Asian rhetoric along with his, you know, anti-immigrant policies have had a devastating and lasting impact on so many 
immigrant community members and especially the Asian American community. And so his words definitely have riled folks up in a way to make them believe false truths about who's to blame for COVID-19. And as a result, we saw that there was an increase in violence. As a result, we saw that there was a decrease in people who were actually visiting businesses that were owned by Asian Americans. And so we saw major impacts of that um, that were on businesses because of the false truth that was given by the previous administration. And I don't think that people understand how deep the lie really went or how bad the impact really was um, until we started to compare how bad that lie was to how much we're still like having to fight and say, Georgia's elections were not rigged. No one likes stole ballots in Georgia. The fact that we are literally in June having a judge say, yes, you can go look at ballots from November because there's a false truth out there about the election being stolen and rigged and all this type of stuff is literally an ongoing effect of a lie. And that's literally what happened with the COVID-19 blaming of the Asian American community. And I think that for us, like I said, we're still seeing the Southeast deportations. We know that there was a, a decrease in how many naturalizations took place. We know that ICE is one of the most heavily funded federal programs ever. Um, and so for us, the work that the previous administration did, we're fighting with this current administration to one, make right, and then to make better because there's no point of you just making it right without putting in place programs and policies that make it better. Yeah, and one thing to me that, um, and you've mentioned this a couple of times, I feel like I kind of have to ask, you've asked, you've talked about the deportations of you know Asian immigrants in the Asian community, which I think is something that we just, I've never honestly heard that before, because I think normally when we talk about deportations, we normally talk about it with members of the Latinx community. Um, how, can you just kind of explain more about that and kind of your, I, I would just say your organizations work to probably try to amplify that. Cause I think that we don't, we, you know, our conversations about immigration are so narrowly focused in this country, largely for, you know, bigoted reasons. But I mean, how do you, how does your organization try to kind of amplify that? And can you just kind of take our listeners into more of kind of what that struggle actually is? Yeah. So I think that what people don't realize is, is that Asian Americans are literally outnumbering the number of Latinx immigrants who are coming into the country. So like the, they're literally the fastest growing immigrant population. And so with that being said, we have seen in recent months that there has been a concerted effort to deport members, folks from Southeast Asia. And so what you have is literally when Biden came into office, there was a plane that was about to take off that we literally advocated. We had members of Congress contacting President Biden. We had I mean, folks from all around the country saying, please ground this plane. There are folks who are on this plane who are not giving an adequate chance because of the last administration or the bad policies that were in place with the last administration. And so it was kind of like, you know, you're in a relationship with a new man, but you're still holding on to something from your old man. Like that literally was what it was. And so we were trying to like, we need you to break up completely with this ideology. We need you to break up with this toxic behavior. We want you to stop and ground this plane. And it just didn't happen. And so for us, you know, I know that when Biden came to Georgia and held his rally, folks all were looking at, you know, the signs that were saying, calling for him to be more active in immigration and take a stronger stance. And they gave him like five days. And we did. And so we saw him say, all right, well, we're going to take ICE out of Irwin County in Georgia. And so he's done some things that have been like, oh, okay, well, this is, a, this is okay. This is, this feels good, but it still doesn't feel like it's the the most 
action or the best corrective measures for us to have really great policies going forward. And I think that when you think about immigration and deportation, people think, like you said, of the Latinx community, not realizing that literally Asian Americans or you know Asian immigrants are being deported just as much or were just as much with the previous administration. And it's not just that. We lead an immigrant uh, rights coalition called Georgia Immigrant Rights Alliance. It's Black immigrants also being deported. And so you have groups like Baji and Women Watch Africa who are doing really great work of trying to protect Black immigrants as well. So with that said, are there any programs or anything that you would love to see from this administration that really well equips um, Asian Americans to feel safe and heard in this, um, in this country? Well, the first thing I would say to this administration is to abolish ICE. I'm always going to start with saying abolish ICE, abolish ICE. Um, I think that we have literally seen a 287G agreements. Uh, uh, we've seen a simple traffic stop turn into a deportation. We've seen people having to hide in church basements. We've seen people having to utilize false names just to gain employment because of the threat of how ICE is and how ICE operates. And so my first request, if I could ever have an audience with President Biden, would be to abolish ICE because that's not just the Latinx community that's impacted. That's also the Asian community. I mean, literally horror stories of folks who are hiding in closets because literally ICE took a concerted effort to go after them and they did nothing. Didn't even run the red light, but they just looked like they didn't belong, especially in parts of Georgia, like Hall County. Um, I think that I would also say, you know, for us, when it comes down to creating policies, we don't want to see more incarceration. We, want, we don't really want to see a stronger carceral system. We want to see a stronger system that goes into creating resources for members of the community. And right now, what we don't see is an increase in equitable access to things like a ballot. And so we talk about, oh, everyone's welcome in America and everyone has the opportunity to cast their voice and cast their ballot. It's something as simple as why is it that both vehicles to create better voting rights laws, neither one of them take into consideration language access for people who have been naturalized and are US citizens, but don't speak English as the first language. If this is really about a welcoming country. And so I think that if our administration could be more intentional and deliberate about the way they treat um, even undocumented communities, that would, that would be a step in the right direction. One thing that actually just kind of just hit me upside the head is that our vice president is a woman of Asian descent. Um, has that increased, do you feel like that's increased kind of the visibility of the groups, you know, of your nature and kind of the ones in your space or, you know, cause that, you know, symbols do matter and, you know, having a black woman and a woman of Asian descent is important. So, I mean, do you think that has kind of shifted your goalposts or your outlook or, you know, what do you think the impact for, you know, having Kamala Harris as vice president been for you? I'm sure that's probably a nuanced answer that might not be very. Yeah. I mean, she didn't ground that plane, <laughs> you know, like sis did not ground that plane and we tried. Um, so <laughs> I think that just because I mean, it's the same thing that goes for like when you're the like token black person somewhere, you don't want to have to carry the burden of having to represent every single black person and every single black, black, black problem and be the poster child. I think that that might be something that comes along with the, the role of being vice president and being, you know, Indian American, um, as, much, as much as she is black American. I don't think that that has created any additional visibility that has led to proactive measures 
or corrective measures that have greatly impacted the Asian American community in a significant way. Like I said, we see two large bills that are pushing for voting rights to be restored or the protection of them. And neither one of them take a significant role in trying to make sure that language access is a priority. So no one, no one pays attention to that at all. They just continue to move forward. That's, yeah. so that was an elaborate no. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I was like, you gathered them real quick. <laughs> uh, but yeah, you've dropped a lot of knowledge and gems and definitely informed me on a lot of stuff pertaining to the Asian American community because honestly, I, I you know, I, I wasn't as aware and it's good to see a black woman, a woman in of color, you know, doing some work in that like vicinity. Uh, so what can myself and our listeners do to, you know, just support um, the triple A, I mean, triple AJ, triple AJ, love acronyms. So what can my, myself, me, Noah and Mackenzie and our listeners do to support the triple AJ and others, um, you know, fighting for Asian American rights? Definitely. So I think that, you know, there are some underlying racial tensions that do exist between the Black community and the Asian American community. And so that requires, you know, some really tough conversations around those underlying racial tensions. And as an organization, we have had some of those conversations most recently, one addressing white supremacy and then also addressing those underlying tensions that do exist between the two communities. And so I think participating in those conversations to sometimes address our own implicit bias is like really, really important because we might not even recognize that we have some of that. Um, I think that there's, and then also adding your voice to that conversation to figure out ways in which you can proliferate and bring about healing so that you don't continue to walk in that implicit bias and treat someone in a way that is really adverse to them. Um, I think that the other thing that we would really call for people to do is we have a campaign called Voices Rising. And Voices Rising is all about calling for accessible and equitable approaches to electoral processes, not just in Georgia, but in the country. So when we talk about For the People Act and the John Lewis Act, we want to make sure that our elected officials aren't ignoring the 69 million people who need language assistance in order to cast their ballots. Because people on the other side of the aisle would prefer that they don't have language assistance to cast their ballots. And so someone has to take on the job of fighting for us all to have equitable access for all voices to be heard in order for our democracy to really be a democracy as representative of the diverse country that we have. And so I think that lending your voice to that in support of that, signing a petition, becoming one of the folks or one of our huddles in any of the country's many cities to raise awareness around voices rising and the need for equitable access to the ballot really is something that we're asking people to do. And then, you know, we have affiliate offices in DC, we have them in California, we have them in Chicago, locating those folks and, and working with them on the campaigns that they have to bring about change on the ground where they are. Right now in Georgia, for us, it's not just, you know, language equity with elections, it's also this discussion around banning critical race theory because our governor doesn't think that it's appropriate to talk about white supremacy while sitting in a seat of white supremacy. So, you know, it's, it's things like that. We want people to support us and pushing back up. Oh yeah, we gonna call it white. We it's white supremacy. Oh, I'm not mad at you. Just call it like, like like I said. You drop the gems. I'm I'm here. We here. We here. <laughs> uh, so, Levita. So before we wrap up, um, where can our listeners and our 
followers on YouTube. Where can they follow you and Triple uh, AJ? I don't know if you have any, you know, website handles or Twitter, hand, Twitter handles. Look, uh, I am horrible with social media, but let me tell you. Well, <laughs> if you need somebody. <laughs> Look, we just got, I can tell you what our, um, so our handle is really weird. It's uh, advancing underscore justice underscore ATL. Yeah, it's a lot. It's but it's advancing underscore justice That's underscore ATL. <laughs> okay. So uh Levita, we want to thank you on behalf of not only the work you're doing, but for having a much needed conversation that we really feel like has informed us, but will also inform our listeners. So we thank you very much for that. So before we wrap up, be sure to follow us on our social media uh, that does not have any underscores or such as the things of that. <laughs> R-G-O pod. You can also uh, check out our website at what's really going on pod.com. You can also subscribe on YouTube where you can watch this video in full. LaVita, we thank you so much very again. Thanks so much for having me.